It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Franklin Roosevelt had to make a decision in July of 1942 that greatly impacted history. Should he throw the weight of America's armed forces against Japan and silence them, or should he throw the U.S. weight against Hitler and stop him? Japan was the very near and present danger to the U.S. and the Pacific. Germany, on the other hand, was a more distant one. As the church in the year 2020, we too have two theaters of war to decide upon, just like Roosevelt had in 1942. We have the natural realm, and we have the spiritual realm. And the Bible supplies us an amazing war policy for how to navigate this critical decision. Hey, this is Eric. Before we dive into today's Daily Thunder message and learn a bit about war strategy, I wanted to remind all the men out there about my eight-week honorable manhood training that is set to launch on Father's Day, June 21st. It's a powerful vision of epic manhood that I guarantee will supercharge your manliness, your marriage, and your fatherhood. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to learn more. Now let's head off to London in July of 1942 and join a critical conference in progress in which the Allies' 42 offensive will be decided. Most of us have a tendency to focus on the beginning and the endings of wars. Because, I mean, what else matters, really? And yet, what I would say is, well, it's the mechanics of how you walk through the war that actually intrigue me more than even just what starts it and how it ends. I am interested in both of those. But so much of the Christian life is made up in the mechanics of how you live it out. And I am, I'm in agony in 1942 right now because I feel like I'm a leader somehow. I'm, I don't know if I'm a, the leader of Great Britain and I'm Winston Churchill or if I'm Franklin Roosevelt. I, I, I'm sort of a split personality as I go through this process. Have you ever had that where you watch a movie and you identify? Uh, my classic illustration of that throughout the years has always been Anne of Green Gables. Remember the series where Gilbert Blythe is, I mean, he is, he is not treated well by Anne. Let's just say it that way. And I identify with Gilbert in that. It's like, hey, I'm trying to be a fine, upstanding guy. I made some mistakes in the past, but hey, can, you know, Anne, can you forgive me? And she will not. She has a chip on her shoulder. And so you go through the whole thing, and then finally the kiss on the bridge in the end, you know, she dedicates uh, her book to him. Oh, it's like just incredible stuff because you've gone through all of that. That's, that's where I'm at, guys. I'm Gilbert Blythe in World War II right now. I am like in agony uh, going through this because these, this is like, I feel the weight on my shoulders to be navigating through this, and it's a dark cloud right now. And so if I can just act, and again, part of it is, is you have to get into the shoes of the moment. You cannot see straight. When America was bombed by Pearl Harbor, Winston Churchill is going to write in his journal that basically we've won the war. He knows that once the Americans enter, they're going to win. Okay, and that's a profound moment in the flow of battle because I felt that. I felt that jubilance in the midst of such darkness. I felt the victory. And that's something that is like the way when we reflect upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know we have the victory. But right now, it just doesn't look good on earth. And it's a similar parallel because they may know they have the ultimate victory, but they have a lot to go through. And right now, they're in a very dark cloud, especially Great Britain. Because uh, Germany is not backing off. They're only growing larger. They're growing stronger by the day. And Great Britain is in a vulnerable spot because in and of itself, it is, it is fragile. It has a lot of resource globally in all of its colonies. 
However, what it needs is America's focus and America's resource and attention. Sort of like we can feel in our own Christian life. The more we realize our fragility and the fact that, okay, I mean well, and I have some good intentions, but by myself, I can't pull this thing off called Christianity. I need this other power to come in and aid me. The challenge that Great Britain is facing in this is America has its own battles now. You see, if America was just focused on helping uh, Great Britain, everything's wonderful. And that's the way it was before Pearl Harbor and before what's called Operation Barbarossa, where the Germans are going to invade Russia. America was supplying Great Britain with everything they could. But then Germany's going to invade Russia, and now Russia is back on its heels. And Great Britain knows America is going to have to direct its resources there to stabilize Russia, because if Soviet Russia goes down, I mean, it's even worse. And Germany just spreads throughout the globe. I mean, this is, this is a precarious time. But then Japan enters the battle, and now America has its own battle. And so it just makes sense on paper. Just imagine if you're Great Britain, and you're thinking, we really could use America's attention over here against Hitler, but they have to put their own attentions on the Pacific. Because I mean, Pearl Harbor was just bombed, guys. This is, this is American property here. And if you remember uh, the Battle of Midway, I think I went through that last week, you have the encroachment of the, of the Japanese, and the Americans are back on their haunches. They're outnumbered. They're outgunned. And so this is a pretty intense struggle. And if they lose Midway Island, they're going to lose Hawaii, Pearl Harbor, and then they're going to lose their West Coast. And America's not set up with just, you know, a whole line of, you know, defense on their west coast. Uh, they're not militarily ready for a world war, uh, something that's going to attack them on so many fronts. The Japanese are. The Japanese have been preparing for this for years, and that's the difference. The Germans and the Japanese are a war mentality in their nation, whereas Great Britain, France, America are like, peace, 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 let's disarm, let's disarm. That's all that led up to World War II is disarmament, disarmament, disarmament. And now suddenly these war nations are coming in and taking full advantage of that. I don't know if you see a parallel in all of this. I see parallels every time I open my mouth and I start talking about World War II. The enemy never stopped arming. It's the church that when it feels a little bit of peace, and it is like, okay, I think I'm stable. I, th I think we're doing fine. All we oftentimes care about as Christians is that we're doing fine. And if, if the battle's overseas and there's a persecuted church over there, oh, that's too bad. But it, it, as long as it's not here, and as long as we have the Republican president, as long as we have, you know, the Republican majority in the House and the Senate, oh, and we will relax and we will not man our posts, and we will lose sight that our enemy is seeking to devour. As a great illustration of the Nazi regime and the Japanese regime in World War II, they are looking for open gaps. And if the gaps are there, they will have dinner tonight. So the 42 offensive, we are in the middle of World War II, <laughs> middle of World War II, that's, yes, we are. We're in the middle of 1942. That's actually what was supposed to come out of my mouth. We're in the middle of 1942, sort of right smack in the middle of the war, if you could say it that way. It is. It's like the middle of the middle of the war. And Great Britain is desperately in need of help from America. Russia, Soviet Russia, is in need of what's called a second front. It's sort of hard to explain. I'm not going to go into too much war detail on this. If you notice, I try and keep it like for dummies, this whole World War II thing. But a front is a point of battle, 
And so, for instance, the home front. The home front in World War I became an issue because now they're making, like, they have factories that are making munitions. And so, actually, it's the first time you started bombing and destroying home bases. You'd always leave the women and children alone until World War I, and then it became a home front. That was actually a front in and of itself. We're going to have to bomb those factories. First time planes had ever been involved, too. So you have a whole bunch of new things that are coming on. So you have these different fronts, but right now there's a front on for uh, Russia, between Russia and Germany, and Russia is being pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, and Germany is tough stuff. I mean, Germany is just one battle-ready machine. And Soviet Russia is backing away, backing away, falling to pieces, falling to pieces, weakening, weakening. And the United States and uh, Great Britain want to see Russia succeed. I know that sounds strange. Soviet Russia, you want to see communism succeed? Not communism. They want to see Russia stand in the battle because if they lose to Germany, Germany is going to turn all of its attentions back on the island of Great Britain. And the allies are going to fall. So this is, it's a very precarious house of cards right now, the way it's set up. So what is needed is what's called a second front. They need to hit somewhere along you know, sort of the Belgium or French lines, like along the channel to drive attentions of the Germans away from Russia somewhere else. And yet they're studying this English Channel crossing. If you guys remember D-Day, okay, that's in the future. They were thinking of an earlier D-Day here to create a second front, but they, they cannot figure out how they could possibly win it. It's that difficult. And so they're studying this, they're studying, they're thinking they're going to do it in 1942. They're looking for what we could call the 42 offensive. They're trying to figure out how to distract the Germans and get German attention somewhere else. They need to somehow help uh, their ally in Soviet Russia the problem is America has a distraction. They're fighting in the Pacific. I mean, right before this is the Battle of Midway, and America has to basically zone in and tune in and say, okay, uh, Great Britain, could you guys somehow just survive over there while we try and survive here? Which is, of course, making everyone feel weaker and weaker as we go. And I'm going to take this idea of a 42 offensive and the decision-making processes and the war policy that they are going to adopt and I'm going to apply it directly to where we're at, okay? And you're going to recognize this is precisely where we are at as the church right now. So the key decision of theaters, where are we going to fight? Are we going to fight in Europe, in Africa, which is where the German attack, I mean, it's Italian too. I could throw the Italians in, but they're almost, in my opinion, inconsequential in, in light of the, the Nazi regime. It's sort of like the Nazis, and then they have a little brother named Italy. But it's really the Nazis that are running the show. So is it the European and African theater, or is it going to be the Pacific theater? So the key decision is going to be July 20th. So the two main theaters, Europe and Africa, I'm putting a slash between that, because it has crept down into the Middle Eastern zone, Northern Africa. It is Europe and Northern Africa now. I mean, this is, this is growing uh, like a, a, a behemoth. The two main enemies, Germany and Japan. Now, I know I could say Germany slash Italy. Again, my impression of Italy's power in this is not, I'm not that impressed. But they're still a power. So Germany and Italy, I'll, I'll give them some credit because there's probably some Italians out there that were offended by that. Uh, I, my threat, the thing, remember, I'm in this battle. Okay, I'm either Winston Churchill or Franklin Roosevelt. I haven't figured out. I'm looking at my chief threat is Hitler. I need to somehow stop Hitler. 
And if I can stop Hitler, Mussolini is obviously going to stop too because Mussolini only has power because he's following Hitler. Okay, so this decision-making process, I have to stop this. Now the question is, will Roosevelt see that? So if I'm, if I'm Churchill, I, I, I see that. If I'm Roosevelt, I don't know if I need to stop Hirohito, Emperor Hirohito and his machine in, the, in Japan. Where is my focus going to be? If you're playing axes and allies a risk on a board, where are you going to strategize to stop this bloodshed? Because this is really bad, and it's getting worse as it progresses. So the ponderings of Roosevelt in 1942. Do we go after Japan now? Okay, so one option is to take all of the military strength that America has and throw it against Japan and see if they can silence Japan. Push Japan back to their island and silence this and then move against Hitler. Okay, that, that's a reasonable uh, idea. Now, what they have to hope is that Great Britain and Russia can survive <laughs> because if they don't, then they have a huge problem on their hand. Yeah, they may have defeated Japan, but now the rest of the world <laughs> is owned and occupied by Hitler. Okay, so how do you make this decision? The second one is, do we go after Germany first? Now, think of your Roosevelt, how the challenge of that decision. So we're going to not go after Japan like heavily. We'll just defend and try and hold them off. But we're going to throw most of our weight into a theater of war that isn't even that close to us. It's, it's further away. This one's on their shores. Japan's on their shores. Germany in Europe, the European, you know, conflict is, eh, it's further away. So you can just sort of see how are you going to approach this as Roosevelt? This is a tough decision. And that's what is going to happen July 20th, 1942. The ponderings of the church in 2020. You know that we have like two fronts? We have a physical front and we have a spiritual front. And most of us are in the same battle. Like how do we deal with this right now? Okay, if, say you're a politician and you're dealing with the same question. It's like, okay, if I do have a position like a Rooseveltian or a Churchillian position in a culture, what is my first and primary battle? And, I mean, you're going to be dealing with this one way or the other. As the church, we have to decide what our battle is. Do we pick it? Do we just sign petitions? Do we just get to the ballot box? What is our strategy? How do we win this war? Because all of us, if we look at it on paper, could see the validity of physical warfare right now, physical standing, physical speaking, physical sharing of truth, physical communication with others, okay? There's, there's value in that, just like there would be to wipe out the Japanese and push them back. Give us some sanity in, on our shores of America, then we can focus elsewhere. If we just get Trump in for another four years, then we can start sharing the gospel. If I remember correctly, it's exactly what the church said three years ago, three and a half years ago. And I'm not sure exactly that we shared much gospel in the last three and a half years. I think we've been bantering and bickering for three and a half years. In other words, I'm not exactly sure that, I think we're conning ourselves into this. I think we have to be Christians no matter what. Even if Nero is ruling and feeding Christians to wild beasts, we still function as Christians. So we are Christians no matter what. We need to figure out our front here. So I'm going to give you a couple options. Do we go after the liberal agenda, the disinformation via the news outlets, and the anarchists now? Because if we could just stop that, then we would maybe have peace. And then, then we could maybe share the gospel. Then we could be Christians again. We could be a vibrant church if we could just silence all of that. Okay, now I'm going to give another option. Or do we go after the spiritual strongman first? Some of you are like, what in the, what is that supposed to mean? Well, I'm going to explain what I mean by that. 
The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6.12 is going to say something that I've repeated quite a few times. When you're talking on World War II, you have to quote Ephesians 6.12 every now and then. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So I think it was Monday's message, I divided the spheres. And I said, if you fight down here in the physical realm, you are actually ignoring what God is giving to us as spiritual wisdom. Actually, I think that might have been Sunday's message. Not positive. Was that Monday's? I'm, maybe I've been talking about it. It wasn't Monday. Maybe it was Sunday. Uh, so God in his wisdom, in his word, has given us an assignment. And he says, I'm going to show you a better battle. You see, I have opened up a way and given you tools and weapons to actually bring down this higher level of darkness so that this other level in the physical realm could be set free. So that actually they can hear you when you speak the gospel. So that they can actually change and reform. Whereas if you just try and change and reform in the physical realm, they're in bondage. It's like trying to say, hey, come with me. Run after me. I'm going up the mountain of the Lord. And they're in chains in a prison cell. They can't even get out. And so if you want to get them out, you have to first strike at the spiritual realm. The word of God is going to describe that as the strong man. It is the more powerful position. If you take out the first, the second is set free. And so Roosevelt is in this situation. Who do I go after? There's usually the obvious up close and personal right on your shores uh, enemy. And there, you know, they're hitting Midway Island, they're bombing Pearl Harbor, and you're like, ah, we need to deal with that. When in actuality, your real battle, your real nemesis might be a little further away, and you may not see them as clearly. However, that's your real enemy, and you need to remember to go after them first. So the strongman principle. Take down the power player, and the dominoes of surrender will follow in the ranks. So this is interesting because this is actually what the Bible teaches. And what you're going to see in World War II is this same reasoning. Roosevelt is actually going to, now, I, I've had to make a disclaimer on Roosevelt because we could look at Roosevelt politically and ideologically on certain things like the New Deal and various things. And if you're conservative, you're like, ah, oh, bah, boo. And yet Roosevelt is going to do certain things that I am going to historically look back on and say, that was actually a really good decision. You know what? I support him in that. And so I think it's important not to just put on political lenses when you look at things in history. It's very easy for us to do. And to recognize that the decisions in battle are very, very significant and weighty. And they're not always political. They're just right and wrong. And so what you're going to see is Roosevelt's going to reason, he may not realize that it's a biblical reasoning point, I'm going to point, point that out to you. He's actually going to make a decision that I'm going to say, that was a very good decision, oh, oh Franklin. So take down the power player and the dominoes of surrender will follow in the ranks. So Jesus Christ in Matthew 12, 29 is going to say, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? So Jesus is going to be referencing this strong man. And if you really want to take that house, take that territory, you're going to need to figure out and identify the strong man. And then you need to bind that strong man, and then the rest will follow. He's going to mention this multiple times, by the way. Luke eleven twenty one through 22, he's going to say, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when in Ischiros... 
Okay, I just gave you a Greek word there. If you've read the Bible, you haven't ever seen that one. You're like, what's that? I don't remember that. Now, in parentheses, I'm going to say what it says. It says, but when a stronger than he comes, ischiros, that actually is going to translate as strong man. Okay, so it's referencing the same word as it's going to use in the, in the beginning, when a strong man, but this is going to be like, put a capital S on it. But when the ischiros comes upon him and overtakes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Do you guys know who the Ischiros is? The strong man with a capital S? That's Jesus Christ. And he's foreshadowing the cross. He's basically saying, I know my battle tactic here. I'm going to come in and deal with your chief enemy. I'm not just going to pull weeds over here. I'm going to, I'm going to get to the root of the problem here. We're going to take it out. Jesus is coming in and he's dealing with the lowercase i, Eskiros, because he's the capital I, Eskiros, and he is going to do business. So Eskiros, the strong man, the big boss, the most powerful in the bunch. And so usually you figure that out in a room. Sometimes in political and, and governmental positions, it's not the big guy you know, with muscles. It could be sometimes the short guy, okay? But they're the big boss. They're the ones that really have the power. And so as a result, you're going to see this all throughout history. You know when the, the communists are trying to take down the church, you know what they're looking for? They're looking for the big boss in the church. You know why it doesn't work when you take out the pastor and you put him in prison? Because the pastor is actually not the big boss of the church. The enemy is unable to bind the Eskiros of the church. You know how frustrating that is? No matter how hard he tries, the capital I, Eskiros of the church, is just like seated on high with all things beneath his feet. It's a great setup for us as the church. The problem is those of us that may look like the big boss in the church have to do a little suffering as a result because the principle is sound. You bind the, the Eskiros and you, the, the rest of it's going to fall like a house of cards. The dominoes will fall. It just doesn't work on the church. Why is that? Because our strong man is Jesus Christ, not a pastor. So Jesus Christ in Mark 1, 7 is, or actually this is not Jesus Christ, this is John the Baptist, sorry about that. There comes one after me who is Iskiros. Okay, now the way it's translated is, there, is one, there comes one after me who is mightier than I. Okay, but what's John saying? There is one then there comes one after me that is the big boss. There is one after me who has all the power. Okay, that's, he's setting us up to understand the strong man is coming. Capital S, strong. Capital I, Eskiros. Whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. Don't, here's John the Baptist. Don't think I'm the strong man. Don't think I'm the Eskiros. I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. I'm a friend of the Eskiros. I mean, that... That's like the church right there. That's our, that's our position. So July 20th, 1942, it's interesting because uh, Franklin Roosevelt will call this the London Conference, but the official term in history is the Second Claridge Conference, which doesn't mean a lot to me. Uh, London Conference makes more sense to me because it took place in London, but there's a lot of London conferences. You do a search on London Conference, and you'll get a whole page full. Like, which one do you want? You want the one in 1800s? You want the one of 40 that happened in the 1900s? It's like, no, I just want the one that happened July 20th, 1942. Oh, that's called the Second Claridge Conference. So here, here we are. I'm giving you the official name of it. Now, 
I almost read to you the whole thing of this. This is a memorandum from Franklin Roosevelt. Isn't it cool that we have this data, that we can actually look at what was behind the scenes, top secret communications. This is, Franklin Roosevelt can't make this trip. There's multiple reasons. It's very difficult for him to do transatlantic trips multiple times. Like Churchill will go back and forth, but Roosevelt with his polio and his condition, it makes it very difficult. He's not, Roosevelt's not going to last much longer. I mean, physically, he's, he's dying. Okay, so this isn't the easiest stretch, but he is, he's stout and he's leading, but he has to have representatives in this situation. So he's going to send over, this is from the desk of Franklin, President Franklin Roosevelt. This is the memorandum for Honorable Harry L. Hopkins, General Marshal and Admiral King. And the subject is instructions for London Conference, July 16, 1942. So we actually have the text, we have the titles for this, we have the actual document of what he is giving to his three representatives to come to the Second Claridge Conference and to negotiate the war policy for the 42nd, the 42 offensive. In other words, how are we going to handle this? Now, I am going to lift out one little segment of it because that's actually all that really matters. The rest of it is extremely intriguing to understand how Roosevelt is thinking through this because he would analyze everything I've already brought out to you. He's going to lay it out for his men. He's going to say, here's the American perspective on it. We see this, we see this, we see this happening, we see this. We see that this would make sense, but I'm going to tell us that this is going to be our policy. So listen to what the policy is going to be. So Franklin Roosevelt said in that memorandum, I am opposed to an American all-out effort in the Pacific against Japan with the view to her defeat as quickly as possible. I am not going to fall for the bait, guys. I know what looks good to us as Americans, and that's just to destroy the Japanese right now, but I'm against that. I'm against trying to put all our effort into just destroying the Japanese. It is of the utmost importance that we appreciate that defeat of Japan does not defeat Germany and that American concentration against Japan this year or in 1943 increases the chance of complete German domination of Europe and Africa. If we don't deal with Germany, Germany is going to control Europe and Africa. And if we defeat Japan, it will not necessarily mean the defeat of Germany. So therefore, we need to think bigger. Listen to this next uh, little slide. This is amazing. On the other hand, it is obvious that defeat of Germany or the holding of Germany in 1942 or 1943 means probable eventual defeat of Germany in the European and African theater and in the Near East. Listen to this line. I italicized it for you and made it bold so you wouldn't miss it because I know some of you are like easily going to miss something like this, right? Don't miss this. This is good. Defeat of Germany means the defeat of Japan, probably without firing a shot or losing a life. Bind the strong man. You know who trained the Japanese? I know this is strange. Very uh, little known fact. When Japan was coming out of its seclusionary period, in the early 1900s, where it's going to begin to explore how do we become a power nation? Because they'd been a defensive nation trying to just shoo everyone away for so long, but they're a little island, right? And they look over there and they see Great Britain, they're like, how can we be like Great Britain? They're an island too, why are they so powerful? They have colonies all over the world, and we're this little island that is helpless. Enough of that. I mean, we're the hardest working people, the most ingenious people in the world, let's do this. Uh, and I mean, they really are an impressive people group, there's no doubt about it. And so who are they going to become understudies of? The Germans. They are going to understand German weaponry, German military tactics. They are a little brother. 
they are going to model their system after the German system. So we have ourselves a little brother, big brother situation. You take out the big brother, little brother will follow suit. The reason that little brother has such confidence is the one who taught him everything is succeeding right now. If the one who taught him everything is falls flat on his face, you're going to see that little brother is going to have a little panic session. Let's start there. And so this is an intriguing thing. It's based on the same premise we have right now. We could deal with this in a natural sense. Or we could deal with this the way God teaches us as the church. You've been given everything you need to bind that strong man. Are you going to use it right now? So the war policy of President Roosevelt. Japan may be our present day greatest personal threat and our most obvious opponent, closest to our shores, but Japan is actually not the strong man. Germany is the strong man, and so Germany must be our priority. We must work side by side with Great Britain to stop Germany, then Japan's fate will mirror that of the Nazi regime. By the way, I just described to you the rest of the war. This is actually the policy of the United States. They still have to deal with Japan, don't get me wrong. They still have to address very real issues, just like we do. We still have to address the natural realm. We can't just ignore it while we're binding strongmen. We just have to make sure the priority of our battle is correct. How are we going to win this? Through prayer. This is a spiritual battle first. The subsidiary dimensions of the natural realm of dealing with Japan is a reality, and you do have to address it. But we must remember the prioritization that God places in the battle. The spirit of lawlessness. So if I were to describe what I see happening in our country, there's a lot of different descriptions for it. This is just one, okay? The spirit of lawlessness, where any authority is now the enemy. As I was saying, uh, what was that, Sunday? The hero is now the zero. Uh, and in other words, what we used to applaud and bring into classrooms and say, listen to your police officer, kids, because he's a hero of our community. Now, he's the enemy. What is that? That's a spirit of lawlessness where you begin to deride and to criticize and to make an enemy of those that actually protect law, those that execute law, those that actually are assigned the job of preserving peace. Why, no, why, why, how could, you see, this is a spiritual maneuver. This is not just, we've got a lot of puppets out there, guys. I know a lot of people always want to blame something on an Illuminati or some, you know, big, huge confederacy of brilliant uh, geniuses that are conspiring to control nations. When in actuality, there is a genius out there who is conspiring to control nations. We just need to make sure we know who the strong man is. You can try and bind the Illuminati all day long, but I'd tell you, if you want to get your job done, you need to bind the strong man. His name is Satan. You see, he is a mastermind, and he does have a plan. He does have a plot, and get this, he does have a conspiracy. He is up to no good, but the Bible already tells us that. We don't need to become conspiracy theorists in the natural realm. We need to, if we want to be a conspiracy theorist, you might as well just be one the way the Bible teaches you to be. The enemy's up to no good. What's he up to today? Well, we're going to take that down. We've been given everything we need for life and godliness. We've been given all the weapons of warfare that are not of this world. They're not carnal. They're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And anything that would exalt itself above the knowledge of God, we can rip it to the ground. We are the church of Jesus Christ, and we serve 
the capital I, Escuteros, the capital S, strongman. We need to remember that right now. Go back to uh, J- December 7th, 1941, when uh, Japan bombs Pearl Harbor and Winston Churchill says, we've won the war. He knows that the Americans are now in it. And once the Americans come in it, oh, he was the best night of sleep he had the entire war. Once you know that Jesus is in this with us, it's the best night of sleep during the whole war you could ever have. You, just, you might as well just live that way every night. It's like, you know, Jesus is in the boat. Jesus is in the boat. Storm beating against him, but Jesus is in the boat. I know he looks like he's sleeping right now, but Jesus is in the boat. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the one that created waves and wind. I think we're fine, even though the winds are really hard and the waves are crashing into the boat and we're starting to sink. But Jesus is in the boat. A Christian lives with the understanding that Jesus is in the boat. He's in this with us. And if he's in this with us, we're not going down. We have triumph. So the spirit of lawlessness, how do you address it? Oh, I don't know. I mean, we have some serious lawlessness taking place in our country right now. I mean, it's weird stuff, okay? Those of us, we almost don't even know how to talk with each other about it without just getting mad, right? Because we, we oftentimes still are defaulting to our battle is against flesh and blood, but our battle is not against these people. Even though we're, they're like messing with our country, they're messing with the way things work. What are they doing? We have bigger fish to fry right now. To see even those anarchists that are ruling, you know, these little zones could be set free and come to their senses and repent and be free and actually turn against and start to expose the, the entire agenda behind this. They're like, yeah, I was once in there, but then Jesus set me free. Let me tell you what they're up to. <laughs> in other words, why don't we go after that? Let's see truth brought to light by having lies exposed, by having the surreptitious movements of the devil brought into the light, because he doesn't do good in light. Darkness fades in light. It dissipates. Let's shine light. If you want to do that, we need to fight this God's way. How do you address the spirit of lawlessness? Well, sort of the same way you address a thistle. Have you ever had a thistle? Yeah. I don't know. The way that thistle are designed, I know who made thistle, God technically made thistle. This is a hard, it's one of those theological points where you're like, God, did you make thistle? Or is thistle like a really beautiful flower? And then when man got corrupted, you went in and touched something in thistle and it, went, and it became a sticky weed, you know, that you, you try and pull it up, right? And I mean, m- many of us that have dealt with thistle, I mean, we, we are purposely trying to get the root out, right? But if it just loves to break off in there, and then you're digging, trying to get, because you know that if you don't, if you just get the leaves of the thistle, that thing's coming right back, and it almost seems to have an attitude when it comes back. It's like, oh, you tried to pull me. Now watch what I'm going to do to your yard. I'm going to multiply around, and I'm going to get really big. You turn your back on a thistle, and it's right back where it was before, that turkey. Uh, I should just call it that thistle. That should be my word, new word instead of turkey. It should be thistle, that thistle. So how do you address it? You get to the root. You have to get to the strongman dimension of a thistle if you really want to address it. Don't just come out with your shears and trim off some leaves and, oh, that looks a lot better. (laughs) That's not going to solve the problem. So the Apostle John is going to give us an insight. 1 John 3, 4 through 8. You guys are going to find this fascinating. I'm going to read through this twice, okay? But this is extremely fascinating when you're dealing with the spiritual battle. John is going out of his way to enunciate something. We oftentimes get distracted. I think you'll understand what we get distracted by in this passage. And I'm going to try and help you not get distracted and get to what John is actually saying. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. 
And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who, who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil." So for some of us, it just sounds like a lot of words, big theological words, and we don't oftentimes know how to apply what we just heard. And we get distracted by things in there. And whoever, sin, whoever sins has neither seen him or known him. Boy, I tell you what, that's one of the most distracting scriptures in all the Bible right there. And so many people trip over that. In light of what's going on, God is teaching us about the strong man. He says, you want to deal with lawlessness? You need to understand what lawlessness is. It's sin. You want to deal with sin? Well, you need to deal with its strong man. You need to deal with a root. I'm just going to show you the root, and I'm going to show you how it's dealt with. Okay, so watch this. Identifying the strong man. Lawlessness is a show of sin. In other words, if you just try and go after the lawlessness, you're actually not, you're just like taking some shears out and trimming off leaves of a thistle. You see, lawlessness is sin. Sin is a show of the devil controlling so as a result, if sin is there, that means it's exposing something. What is that? That this is a life under control. And as a result, if you really want to get rid of the lawlessness, what do you need to do? You need to bind the strong man, which is to deal with the devil, which is, sets that person free from sin, which then obviously is going to solve the lawlessness. So if you deal with the devil, you're dealing with the sin. If you're dealing with the sin, you're dealing with the lawlessness. And then, by the way, if you think it's up to you to deal with the devil and to deal with the sin and to deal with the lawlessness, you didn't read that scripture correctly. So I'm going to read it for us again. Identifying the strongest man. God is going to analyze for us. It's like, I'm going to show you why I'm coming. I'm going to deal with the strong man on your behalf. And then I'm going to let you spoil the goods. In other words, he's doing the work for us and then he gives us the authority to come in with his power to deal with sin and lawlessness. In other words, we have tools to address these issues, but we need to remember how God works. He has taught us something for military strategy. So let's read this again. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. In him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. So remember what this passage is talking about is the stronger. It's showing that our enemy has been defeated. So yes, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness, but your fight is actually not lawlessness. And technically it is sin. Don't get me wrong. It's not that you don't have a problem with lawlessness. It's not that you don't have a problem with sin. It is, but sin is a, or lawlessness is a byproduct of sin. It's an extension of it. So you want to deal with sin? Well, I know someone who can help you. In him is no sin. And so it says, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. So if you're going to live in him, that's a great spot to, to be if you really want to deal with these problems, right? But I got a problem, Jesus. I can't live in you because I'm controlled by the devil. All right, we'll get to that. So whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, 
that he might destroy the works of the devil. Identifying the strongest man. Lawlessness is a little brother of sin. Sin is a little brother of Satan. Satan is defeated by the at the cross by the capital I, Escuteros. Welcome to the gospel. This is what Christ has taught us. You want to deal with this battle correctly, you have to deal with the spiritual. We're seeing manifestations of lawlessness in our world. We are. We're seeing corruption take place where the accountability on what is being shared through the media is not there. We're like, why doesn't that get, why isn't there criminal prosecution for what's taking place? I mean, I'm, believe me, I, I've seen the bubble thoughts above all our heads. Why isn't there justice? What's going on? Why isn't there some kind of backlash against this evil? Lawlessness is creeping in, encroaching upon our nation, which has always prided itself in justice and law. We are a nation under law, not just under dictators and despots. We're under law. And even our president, even our Congress, even our Supreme Court technically in its original inception was under law as opposed to the ones that defined it all. So as a result, something is happening before our eyes. We're seeing the thistle leaves grow. We're seeing evidence of something deeper. You want to deal with the lawlessness? You have to recognize what it is. It's sin. As Ray Comfort said, this is not a skin issue, this is a sin issue. You see, the issue is actually sin that is not dealt with. And if we don't deal with sin, well, how can we survive? Well, how are you supposed to deal with sin? You go off and deal with your sin. None of us can deal with our sin. It is more powerful than us. It's an evidence that we are controlled by a power known as the devil, the power of darkness, the prince of the power of the air. We are hostage. I have good news for you people. I see the lawlessness there, and I see the sin, but what I'm actually seeing is that you're controlled by something. You're controlled by one who is defeated. And so if you will humble yourself and repent and believe in Jesus, you will be set free from that captivity and brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And those shackles will break free and no longer will sin be able to control you. And as a result, are we concerned about lawlessness if we're being set free from the devil and being set free from sin? Lawlessness will melt away. The Japanese power will melt away if you deal with the strong man. You deal with Hitler, Japan will fold up. Let's make sure our war policy is in alignment with the word of God. Father, I ask that you would train our hands for war. Prepare us, Lord Jesus, with your war policy right now. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. The nations of the earth may conspire and scheme against you, desiring to take you down. Lord, you are not threatened by such things. And may we remember when we're in the boat and the storm is beating against that boat that you're in this boat with us. And at times it may look like you are asleep and you don't notice our need, but you are very aware of our circumstances. Lord, we want to fight this the way you have trained our hands to fight it. Lord, we want to fight on our knees first and foremost. This is a spiritual battle. And Lord, we exert the authority of Jesus Christ right now as the body of Christ and we bind that strong man afresh. You have done the work, and we must exercise what we have been given, that we may spoil that house of sin in this world, that we may 
Take what belongs to you and take it back for the purposes of your kingdom, your love, your mercy, your kindness, your justice. Lord Jesus, we desire your nature to be evidenced in and through us, and of course we desire it in our culture. We desire peace on this earth. We do, but we desire it your way. Please, Lord Jesus, come and do what only you can do. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.